Hi everybody, I'm Ashwin. And I'm Raj. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. Uh, today we are excited to talk about mentorship and career development. Uh, we have an expert, Dr. Marty Tolman, uh, who is a professor of medicine at Northwestern University. Dr. Tolman is a giant in the field of hematology and had mentored numerous trainees and faculty. This episode is very special to me since I consider myself fortunate to be mentored by Dr. Tolman. And he's the one who motivated and inspired me to embark on a career in leukemia. Dr. Tolman, before we start, can you tell us about yourself and your current role? Well, thank you, Ashwin. Thank you for your kind words. And I'm really excited to see both you and Raj, both of whom I've known and worked with closely in the past. Um, I was on the faculty at Northwestern University for about 21 years and then moved to Sloan Kettering 12 years ago to become chief of the leukemia service and professor of medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College and uh, was very happy there. Uh, but uh, we had the birth of our first grandchild last August. And that was enough to motivate my wife and I to want to be closer to the grandchild and my son and daughter-in-law. So we moved back to Chicago and I'm joining, rejoining the faculty at Northwestern. And I'm very excited about that too. Very yeah. inviting you today. Yeah, back to the home institution in a way. Yes, very much so. I'm looking forward to it. I think Northwestern was the first job you took up after your fellowship. It was, I was a fellow at the University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle and it was my first job. And I wasn't planning, I was very happy there for 21 years and I had no plans on moving and I wasn't looking, but I was fortunate enough uh, to have a wonderful offer from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and it was just too good to pass up in a city that I love. And uh, I had a very exciting 12 years there. Um, so we can jump in right in right now. Um, I think uh, I'll start with the first question, Raj. Um, our listeners are mostly trainees in various stages of career. Uh, Dr. Tolman, can you please tell our listeners how they should approach finding the right mentor? That's certainly an important question. Um, the mentor-mentee relationship is uh, sort of an apprenticeship. I think of it as an apprenticeship, and it's a major commitment. And I think the mentee would like to find someone who is in their field in general. We'll come back and talk more about that. It doesn't have to be in their field, but I think in general, a primary mentor should be in the, in the field in the disease in which the mentee is working. I think you wanna find someone who you admire, someone who has uh, been successful, uh, both sort of personally and professionally, someone with who you can connect readily, because it's, it's a big investment for both parties. Um, and someone who wants to be a mentor, not someone that has to be a mentor or feels obligated to be a mentor. It's a privilege to be a mentor. I always thought it was one of the most important uh, aspects of academic medicine. And I think it's among the most rewarding. So I think you want to find someone that you connect with on a personal and professional level, someone you like, someone you admire, someone who he himself or herself has been successful, 
both academically and personally, and who is a good communicator. And finally, not less important, I think you want someone who certainly has the time to devote, because as I said, it's a major investment and a major commitment. So those are some of the factors I think go into finding a, a good mentor, a good match. Thank you, Dr. Tolman. That was uh, really good. I think you touched on various points that we also wanted to talk about uh, in more detail and the subsequent uh, and during the during this episode. Uh, so, Raj, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, you know, now I wanted to switch gears and talk about how you approach mentorships. For example, if somebody, a junior faculty or a fellow, is coming to you um, and they want you to be their mentor. Uh, and the first thing is that I wanted to ask was, how do you set expectations and boundaries when you are meeting a, a new mentee or, new, or a prospective mentee? You know, I've never, I can't think of a time when I've turned somebody down from being, I've been asked, I've had the privilege of being asked. And I just <laughs> haven't, I see Raj is smiling and I share your smile. Uh, I, I just haven't turned anybody down. I haven't felt I couldn't connect with someone or couldn't communicate well with someone. Um, I think it is an, an apprenticeship, it is an investment, it is an opportunity for both parties to invest in each other and in medicine. Uh, it is a privilege, it's a real privilege, I'm not just saying that, it's a privilege to be a mentor for someone. It can, it can actually be a lifelong, not just long term, but it can be a lifelong relationship and often is a lifelong relationship both personally and professionally. But I was going to say, I think it's also um, important to establish expectations. Uh, I think it's, I always ask the mentor, mentee, what, what, how can I best be of service to you? How can I best help you? Not every mentee and mentor relationship is exactly the same. Some mentees need motivation. Others take, take major initiative. Others have no trouble completing projects, and some are a little sluggish in <laughs> projects. Some write easily and readily, which is, uh, which is a gift, and others have a little more difficulty with writing and need more sort of pushing and more assistance. So I think I, it's important to ask the mentor, the mentee, what, what can I best, how can I best help you? What are your expectations? And then we talk about mutual expectations, in terms of time commitment, how often we meet, and how I as a mentor can fulfill the expectations and the goals and the wishes and the hopes of the mentee. Yeah, this, you know, initial the communication between the mentor and mentee, I feel like is very important. And, you know, it's, it's very important to establish that up front. And um, that's, that's really helpful. Uh, then, you know, when you, again, you know, going back to your approach to mentorship, you know, when you meet a new um, prospective mentee, how do you approach, you know, establishing some short-term goals and some long-term goals, you know, um, or some benchmarks for, for success, for example? Again, I think I'd let the mentee take the lead. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it really ends up being a friendship. It's certainly, it's hard not to be friends and like your mentee and establish a good relationship. It shouldn't be, I don't think it's such a formal relationship. I, I find that it's best if it's sort of informal and based on friendship and, and liking each other and enjoying each other's company. Um, 
I do think you're right. There are some uh, short-term goals in terms of uh, manuscripts, uh, presentations, for example, what someone hopes to get accomplished in the short term and some long-term goals and, and how best can the mentor help the mentee achieve those short-term and long-term goals. Yeah, and you know, going uh, in the same vein, it's a, it's a little bit more of a philosophical question that when you're working with a mentee, you know, how do you assess whether uh, you know, the project that the mentee is working on is that uh, like are they really passionate about that particular subject area or that project versus you know um, they are doing this just to check a box for example to go to the next level um, or to get a position for example like do you have, do you have a way of assessing that over time or how how do you approach that you know it's it's been someone once a friend of mine once told me if you want to see if someone is an A B or C tennis player. You don't have to watch them play for an hour. You have to, you, you can watch them hit about three balls, maybe five balls in a row, and you'll know about if they're A, B, or C. And I think there's some truth to that. I find it doesn't take much time to assess if a mentee is passionate uh, uh, and enthusiastic and excited about their work. First of all, again, I find that most of the mentees I've had the privilege of working with are indeed passionate. But I think you see if someone, you can tell if someone's excited, if someone takes initiative, if someone completes their projects in a timely fashion. And you can sense, I think, quickly and easily if they're excited and enthusiastic about uh, about their work. So I, I don't, I think you just have to watch them hit about four balls and that's, you, you'll know. Thank you, Dr. Doman, for that uh, very, very insightful discussion. I think this is something you already, you know, briefly touched upon, but uh, now can you tell us you know, what it takes to be a good mentee? Um, I know that you mentioned someone who, you know, passionate about the project at the same time, you know, who finishes the project on time. Apart from that, what else do you look in a good mentee? I think a good mentee, um, again, I don't want to repeat myself completely, uh, is enthusiastic about their work, is passionate, as you put it, about their work. I think that's very important. Uh, If they're focused, I think that's super, super important for a fellow and junior faculty um, to be very, very focused in an area rather than do a number of projects. You can do a number of projects, but they should be focused in an effort to create a body of work as opposed to doing one project that's un- sort of unrelated to the next project and that project is unrelated to the, the third project. I think someone that is passionate, someone's enthusiastic, someone that is focused, Someone that is articulate, can articulate about what their expectations are, what their goals are, and again, how the mentor can help them transition in their career to achieve those goals. Um, I think a good mentee as a good mentor needs to take the time that that it requires to spend with each other. Sometimes I meet 
weekly with a mentee. Sometimes I meet with a fellow or with a junior faculty. Sometimes I meet every other week. Occasionally, there are some that are I can barely keep up with them, that they're so enthusiastic and so passionate and so productive and complete manuscripts in a week that I sometimes meet every other week or even every month. But I would say probably every week or every other week, I sit down with a fellow or a junior faculty. So those are, I think, the major uh, factors that uh, are required to be a good mentee. Yeah, and you know, just probing a little bit into, as you say, the focus. You know, while doing like building a body of work, uh, I feel like when you are a fellow, you know, initially when you are looking for opportunities, I think. At that time, it's it's a little bit hard, you know. As you, I think, grow in your career, junior faculty or mid career, you know, and you have already identified your focus. Uh, but initially, you know, for somebody who is just like interested in a disease type, like leukemia, for example, but still, you know, maybe doing some clinical trial, doing some outcomes work, you know, uh, that that I find a little bit challenging, you know, initially to develop a focus like very early. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I think you're right, Raj, that it's difficult, but I think yet it's important. And I think if you can do it, it should be done. I think in academic medicine, um, you know, it's said partly in jest, but it is said that in academic medicine, you get rewarded for knowing more and more about less and less. Yeah, yeah. that's very true. <laughs> if, you're, if you're the world's expert on a, on a certain very rare disease, <clears throat> excuse me, it gets you quite far in academic medicine. So it's not easy, but I think one should focus. Now your focus could be AML, or your focus could be high-risk AML, or your focus could be AML in the elderly, or your focus could be uh, supportive care in AML, novel agents in AML. But I think it is important to focus as early. You can certainly be successful if you focus later while you're mid-career, but I think if you're a fellow or junior faculty, I think it's, uh, you'll be very successful and it will do one well to focus as early as you can. And in a way, in a, in a reasonably near, now you, again, you can be a myeloma. I know Raj, your interest is in particularly myeloma. And you can get very far and be very successful and very satisfied in academic medicine and knowing everything about myeloma and trying and making a contribution to myeloma. Or you can be interested, you can develop into high-risk myeloma, role of transplant in a myeloma, so on and so forth, molecular genetics. So I do think it's important to focus as early as possible. That, that's very helpful. Um, so now, again, talking a little bit about writing, you had mentioned writing uh, before. Um, so as you know, writing is an integral part of our career in academics. Um, however, it may not naturally come to everyone. So what advice would you give to, you know, early career investigators regarding scientific writing and writing scientific manuscripts and grants? I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't come easily to everybody. But I think it's uh, very, very important. It's a skill that's very important. It's one of the major ways we in academic medicine communicate. We communicate verbally, of course, in conferences, but we communicate in writing abstracts, manuscripts, um, for example. So I think it's important to develop those skills. And I think there are some, you know, it's interesting. Again, it comes much more naturally to some people than others. 
I think reading other people's manuscripts can help. I think if you're if you have the opportunity to be a reviewer for a uh, journal, particularly a distinguished journal, that could be extremely helpful. You can learn what to do to be a good writer, a scientific manuscript, and you can learn what you think is not such a good thing to do in a scientific manuscript. So now sometimes it's not easy for fellows, although sometimes not not infrequently journals do ask fellows if they regard them as a, as emerging authorities in a particular area to review a manuscript, but certainly junior faculty. So I think it's very important to, uh, if you can, it's a wonderful opportunity to review manuscripts for journals. The other thing that I, I think is worth mentioning, sometimes people have the concept that they're gonna sit down on a Saturday or Sunday or one evening and write the manuscript. And it can be overwhelming to write an entire manuscript. But I found uh, two possible clues, two possible uh, uh, things that one can do. Number one is one can write it in parts. So take a week and say, I'm just gonna write the introduction this week. I'm not gonna write anything more. Then a week or two later, say, I'm just gonna write the materials and methods section not going to write the results. A week or two later, write the results. And then finally, a week or two later, write the discussion. And I think if you approach it in sort of sections, it becomes less overwhelming for many people. Another thing that I've found that works for me, some people have sort of writer's block, what has been referred to writer's block, they know the material, they've made a major contribution in their clinical trial or their laboratory work, but they just can't put it on paper. And sometimes that's because they're perfectionists and they try to write the first sentence and the first sentence isn't perfect and it takes them forever to get the first sentence down. So sometimes what I think, what works for me is to write the manuscript, just write it and without worrying about mistakes and concepts being perfect and the vocabulary and your word choice being perfect, just to get it down on paper. And once you get it down on paper, whether you do it in parts or not, uh, then you go back and wordsmith and edit carefully line by line and word by word. Editing line by line and word by word, I think is among the most enjoyable parts of writing a manuscript. You wanna select exactly the right word and you have the time to select exactly the right word. So I think sometimes writing a manuscript, just getting it down, don't worry if it's not perfect by at all. And then you can go back. So I think those are some, some uh, potentially helpful recommendations for writing. But I do think you're absolutely right. It's important for what we do. In academic medicine, one is gonna be writing for the rest of your academic career. Again, abstracts, manuscripts, for example, talks. Sometimes people, we have short talks at ASH or ASCO that are 10 or 15 minutes. Some people script them, write them out. So you're gonna be writing for the rest of your academic career. And it eventually becomes enjoyable, I think. It's a challenge, it's always a challenge, but I think it's, it's enjoyable, again, to select, write the right word, the right phrase, what you really wanna convey. Yeah, thanks. That, that's very helpful. Um, would you comment, you know, a little bit on manuscript writing versus grant writing? You know, those are like a little bit like those are quite, I would say, quite different skills. And um, 
some people are you know good at manuscript writing but grant writing requires a whole different learning curve um would you comment a little bit on that yes i think they are different there's no question um grant writing i think in many ways is much more difficult um there's often uh, certain uh, requirements for grants that one has to follow very carefully, particularly for federal grants. They want us to follow carefully. Uh, and there's a certain pattern uh, that's required. Uh, but I think it is a bit of a different skill for that reason, yes. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Dolman, on a similar note, um, do you, you have written or published you know, more than 600 manuscripts on PubMed now, uh, probably more. And the last time I checked, it was like close to 600, probably right now it has crossed 1,000. Um, do you write on a daily basis? Like I've heard some people saying that, you now if you sit down like the first thing in the morning and write a manuscript, which you are supposed to work on, that helps for some people. Uh, do you practice something very similar? Like, you know, you dedicate like one hour exclusively for writing manuscripts every day, a fixed time, or does it not your practice? No, it's an interesting question, Ashwin. Um, no, that's not the way I write. Um, if I have a manuscript, um, I tend to write, take an afternoon or an evening uh, and write a first draft. Just to, I'm one of those people that functions well if I get the first draft down. Um, I, and then I, editing later. And then wordsmithing it and working on it later. And it's okay. very fun to do it. It's actually fun and enjoyable to go back and edit it with one of your colleagues and your one of your co-authors. And that's really fun. Many years ago, I had a, worked with a fellow, an outstanding fellow clinician, and a really a, just a wonderful, wonderful person. And we're doing close friends and close friends many years later. And when this person was a fellow, we wrote a number of papers together. And he did not like to write papers. <laughs> and I like to write papers. And I like to write papers and just to get the first draft down. But he was an outstanding editor. He thought so clearly. And his word choice was so outstanding. And we were a great match. <laughs> I would write the first draft. And then we take a Sunday afternoon, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes we take all afternoon, and we'd go through it line by line, word by word. And so I functioned very well getting the first draft down, and this uh, former fellow and now colleague of mine, I regard as a colleague, but very close friend of mine now, personal friends, was an and is an outstanding editor, an outstanding writer, but he did not enjoy writing a first draft and writing really writing the manuscript but he uh, so we were a terrific combination i think thank you thank you dr Dorman. so switching gears um dr Dorman, you were um the chair of ecog leukemia committee for a long time and what advice you would give to mentees to get involved in cooperative groups in designing clinical trials well, thanks, Ashwin. I think that's a really important question. And uh, I think cooperative groups are one of the most important and best things you can do in academic medicine. You're right, I did have the privilege of serving as the ECOG leukemia chair for 16 years. Um, I think I was one of the longest serving um, 
chairs of, a, of an ECOG cooperative group committee. And um, I think it's one of the best things you can do for many reasons. First of all, it's a wonderful opportunity for networking. It's a terrific opportunity to see how clinical trials are designed and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, how the biostatistics are developed. Um, you also, perhaps I think one of the best things is that you establish absolutely lifelong friendships. Some of my closest friends are from the ECOG Leukemia Committee for the last 30 years. And uh, I think that's worth uh, a lot. Um, I think if you're interested, and, and by the way, the other very important issue is that you can get involved, not just to learn about how clinical trials are designed, and you can learn about biostatistics, but you can get involved and you can propose a clinical trial. And it's very important to hear how your colleagues think about diseases, not just about designing trials, but about uh, how they treat and how they diagnose the diseases that we all struggle with. If one is interested, you should write, I think, write the chair of the committee, the co-chair of the committee. Most committees have a chair and a co-chair, the three cooperative groups in the US. And tell them what your interest is, that you're interested in joining the committee, coming to the committee meetings, and I'm sure that they'll be very welcoming. So I think it's important. Now, some people think that they're cumbersome and they're slow and it takes a long time to get projects through. And I think that that's true. No one can deny that. I think everyone will agree. But I think that they're, they function faster than they used to projects, many projects, that is, um, get through committees more quickly than they used to. And I think certainly the benefits uh, far, far, far outweigh the, the uh, difficulties with cooperative groups. They also, if you're involved and you have a project that comes to fruition, there is a sort of a credibility that's, that's uh, unsurpassed, I think, with the cooperative groups. I mean, you can do single institution studies from prestigious institutions that are well done and reliable. But I think the cooperative group system, when studies are done through the cooperative groups, they, they lend a, a, a genuine credibility that uh, people have great respect for. And do you encourage all your mentees to be get involved in ECOG very early on in their career? I think if they express an interest, yes. I do, and I do encourage them to get involved in the cooperative group system. It's, uh, there's a lot of camaraderie, a lot of friendship, but again, it's, it's very important to hear how other people think about the disease uh, around the country at different institutions, how different institutions and other investigators, how our colleagues think about certain diseases. And then that's why I think we, one reason we go to conferences and they're so important and enjoyable is to hear new data, yes, but to hear about how people treat, diagnose and treat the diseases we all struggle with. So I think, yes, I would encourage everyone, clinical, clinical fellows and faculty interested in clinical investigation to attend cooperative group meetings, absolutely. All right, so Dr. Tallman, the next question that I wanted to ask was that, as you know, for early career investigators, um, 
who are on track to become an independent clinical investigator or clinical researcher. Um, what do you think is the ideal balance? I mean, there may not be a perfect balance, but you know, what do you think is the ideal balance between research time, protected research time and clinic time? You know, we always face this that, you know, if you have too much clinic time, then there is not enough time to think and design, you know, research projects. On the other hand, you know, we re- really do need clinical expertise to come up with good research ideas. So, you know, how do you approach this balance and what advice would you give to uh, junior early career investigators? Another important question, Raj, thank you. Um, I think that uh, most clinical faculty and most academic medicine, and I say most, my impression is that from my talking to colleagues around the country, junior faculty and even senior faculty spend about three equivalent of three half days in clinic. Some institutions spend four, but in general, I think many, if not, I'm not sure about most, but many that I'm aware of uh, recommend and, and provide for three half days of clinic and roughly six to eight weeks, sometimes 10 weeks, but roughly six to eight weeks of inpatient service. I think with that kind of um, time allotment, it really should provide adequate amount of time to think about projects and to work on uh, clinical projects. Um, now, I do acknowledge from my own practice, but I seeing other junior faculty and fellows, that our field in particular, hematologic malignancies, has grown and expanded exponentially in terms of diagnosis and treatment. Um, And I think it has gotten more complicated. So if, for example, uh, for many years, many institutions have in clinic a 20 minute time allotment for a return patient and an hour for a new patient visit. And I think I acknowledge readily that that has become much more difficult. We have more options. Um, instead of talking about donorubicin and cytarabine induction in preparing a patient, we now have venetoclax and HMA. We now have CPX351. We have all kinds of other obje- uh, therapies, options that require lots of time. And especially clinical trials, we have, there's been such an explosion in novel agents and new clinical trials that it takes an enormous amount of time it's rewarding and it's important and it's an obligation, but it does take an enormous amount of time now. So I acknowledge a 20 minute return is sometimes very difficult. And even an hour visit, by the time you take a history, physical, um, sit down with the patient and the family, do a family conference, it, it's really, it's uh, not so easy anymore. But I think again, three, sometimes four half days, the equivalent and half days may be, for example, a five-hour clinic would be roughly uh, what many institutions, I think, would provide for. So I think that would should provide enough time for clinical research. Dr. Doman, so switching gears, um, you know, do you encourage your mentees to seek uh, multiple mentors? Um, if a mentee approaches you with a mentorship, do you also ask them if, for a project, if uh, other mentor might also help in developing the project together. Yeah, thanks, Ashwin. Another really important uh, and interesting question, actually. Um, 
I think it's very useful for a mentee to have a primary uh, mentor. But yes, I think the answer is yes. I think it's very useful uh, occasionally, and, and I would say frequently, to have a secondary mentor. Now, as you alluded to, suggested, the secondary mentor might be on a particular project. The, main, the primary mentor and the mentee may say, well, we need some advice in this area. Let's, let's talk, why don't you talk with so-and-so in the faculty? It's also sometimes useful to have a secondary uh, regular mentor, like the primary mentor. Um, I would say in, in clinical, people that are developing clinical trials, I would say that's probably less frequently. I think it certainly can, can be very useful, but I think it, in the reality is it tends to be one primary mentor and a secondary mentor if we need some laboratory assistance for correlative studies, for example, or biostatistical help. But I do think a secondary mentor can be very useful, as I said, not only on a specific project, but as it gives uh, the mentee a second uh, point of view, fresh feedback, a fresh way of viewing things, new ideas. So I think, yes, it can be very useful. So uh, next question, and again, it's, uh, I would say, a difficult situation, you know, that when the expectations are not being met by a mentee and, you know, you have been, you know, mentoring somebody for some time and the expectations are not being met, you know, how do you typically handle a difficult situation like that? Thanks, Raj, for that question. Um, I think it's, in my experience, it's been uncommon. In my experience of my personal mentees that I've had the privilege of working with, that is, it just has never happened. There are certain mentees that may require a little more nudging, <laughs> more, more assistance, more recommendations, more meeting more frequently. Uh, but I, but I think it's uncommon, it doesn't happen. Yeah, but I think I am aware of other instances with other mentors and mentees, actually that I can think of only once where things were not working out well. And I think uh, one has to identify what the issue is. Um, is the issue of one of a time commitment on one or both parties, parts? Is the issue, um, um, not, not understanding expectations or responsibilities that the mentee has? Uh, is it that the mentor is simply too busy, overcommitted, for example? So I think sometimes it's a pretty rare, but I think uh, sometimes there has to be a change made and a switch in mentor and mentee are made. But I think it's pretty uncommon if you uh, try to identify the best men mentor as a mentee. So I think it doesn't happen very often. Switching case, Dr. Tolman. Um, for aspiring clinical trialers, mm -hmm. how do you recommend approaching um, the portfolio to balance between investigated initiated clinical trials versus industry-sponsored clinical trials versus cooperative groups? Do you recommend a perfect balance between all these three different types of clinical trials? Another important question that's very timely. It's interesting that many years ago, many years ago, drugs may have been developed at universities, but today, most of the novel agents, and again, there's been such an explosion, not just in my area of AML, but certainly in ALL and with lymphoma and CLL and myeloma, it's such an exciting time to be in the field of hematologic malignancies and academic medicine. Um, 
but I think most of the drugs, many if not most, are really developed at our with our colleagues in pharma pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical ind pharmaceutical industry has not only the drugs, but of course they have outstanding scientists that are colleagues that are experts in their field and making major contributions. So I, I don't think uh, I don't think that one can um, work only uh, in, in investigator-initiated trials or industry trials or cooperative group trials. I think all of them are important. And I think it depends on where one's interest is and where one's career takes them. If you're interested in novel drug development, then I think you may get involved in all three. I don't think there's any hazard to becoming involved in, in the, um, with industry, uh, but I think it is important to try to take a leadership role if you can, rather than, it's important to accrue to clinical trials. One can't be a leadership, can't take a leadership position in every trial, but I think it's important if you can, especially as a fellow or particularly junior faculty, try to get a leadership position, try to contribute if you can, and then you'll be rewarded with a leadership position in the trial. It's of course very, you get lots of rewards for developing investig investigator-initiated trials and novel ideas. Those tend to get the most academic reward. I think those are important. If you bring, uh, as a junior faculty in particular, if you bring a drug from its early development to a clinical trial, phase two or even phase three clinical trial, I think you can really make an important contribution and, and get rewarded for that. Then, of course, cooperative group trials, again, I think are quite important. Um, it does take uh, sometimes a commitment to the cooperative group. You have to have a good idea, but I think it, it helps to, have, to attend the meetings regularly to make, uh, make yourself known to network, let people get to know you. And then you present an idea and hopefully you get rewarded with uh, the principal investigator position on a clinical trial. Thanks, Dr. Tolman. So um, finally, I wanted to touch on a, on a hot button topic that is financial conflicts of interest. So, um, you know, as junior investigators, sometimes, you know, we get invited for, for example, advisory boards for pharmaceutical companies. Um, and, you know, now you have the CMS open payments where patients or anybody can pretty much go and see you know, what financial conflicts of interest uh, an investigator has. Um, so do you have any advice for junior investigators regarding how to, you know, how to approach financial conflicts of interest, what conflicts they should completely avoid versus what is considered okay? Um, and you just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yes, it's, thanks for us. It's a bit of a difficult area, of course, and you're right, it is a hot button issue at the moment. By the way, when you report conflicts of interest, it isn't necessarily to say that you can't uh, participate or you can't receive an honorarium. It's just that you have to disclose it so that the public knows that you could be potentially influenced. Um, so I, I think it's uh, I think it's okay to interact with pharmaceutical industry, of course, and it's so and it's reasonable to get uh, paid an honorarium for a talk you may you give at a university medical center or for a pharmaceutical company. You work, work for an, at an advisory board, for example. But I do think one has to be careful and one has to sort of not become overly 
uh, involved, the overly dependent, except in the overabundance of. So I think uh, advisory boards are fine, honoraria for talks and meetings and medical grand rounds, for example, I think are fine. Universities often provide an honorarium. But I think, uh, I think those are the things that one, uh, it's okay to be rewarded with. But I would, I, my general rule myself <clears throat> is to not invite uh, potential conflicts if I can avoid them. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Tolman. This was a fantastic discussion and uh, we both learned a lot and we hope to have you have again here to talk about specific diseases like APL, uh, hopefully in the future episodes. Thank you for having me. It'll be a privilege to come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you.